Are we ready? Apparently we're not ready, because Anya's chatting. Shut up, Anya. No one cares about you and you're adopted. <coughs> that was a little cruel, but effective. Yes, very cruel. Mm-hmm. Ready? Mm-hmm. Just making sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now he started. You want to go shut him up? Yeah, it's fine. Shut up in there! Hey, kids, comics! I'm telling you, my spider sense is tingling. Amazing Spider-Man number 129 mint condition. Worth a thousand bucks. Comic book. No, it's not just a comic book. This is the first appearance of the Punisher. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Willow, but it's the fat signal. How do I get it to work? Willpower, like the Green Lantern's ring. You call it comic books. That's so cute. Cute? It's very rugged and manly. Just a bit cute. Huh? I think it's sweet. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. You must feel like Jimmy Olsen. You can't charge innocent people for saving their lives. Spider-Man does. Action is his reward. Hey, kids, comics! I still don't know what I'm doing. What you're sticking with. Um, hello and welcome to another spanking new episode of Hey Kids Comics. I am Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. And tonight we are doing part three of Farewell Hellblazer. Um, now, we know what you're thinking. And you're right. Yes, it's been a while since part two. Yeah, well, you know, these things happen. We had to wait for the, the issues to come out. Yes. And we wanted to include the new, newly rebooted, reformatted, reyoungified Constantine in uh, the aptly titled Constantine. Yeah. Because just like the rest of the new version of John Constantine, it has no subtlety. But I think I may be giving away a little yeah, bit yeah. too much there. So, we will move swiftly on and discuss... Um, Emails. Yes, but before that, there was something I was going to mention. I don't know what it was. Oh, yeah, I was on another podcast. Oh, yeah? I know this makeup was a huge surprise to you, given that I am a, a whore. But uh, we recently recorded another Who True Freaks dedicated to the magnificence that is Sarah Jane Smith, a.k.a. actress Elizabeth Sladen. I was joined by the mighty Sean Engel from um, Just One of the Guys podcast. The Irredeemable Shag from the Fire and Water podcast. And the wonderfully erudite Thomas DJ from the Better in the Dark podcast. Yeah. All fine shows that you should be listening to. Something that should be coming up soon that I did. Yes, go on. The good Mr. Michael Bailey. Oh, yes, yeah, but I thought we'd plug this. How do we? Oh, well, we may have, we could, they may have forgot. We could plug it again. You can't it? not plug you enough. Yes, it, you can't actually, but it will be <laughs> coming up soon on. From the long box. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> know the name of the show you were on. Helps in the plugage. Let's get rid of Let's. That. Oh. <laughs> no, no, usually that in that spot. <laughs> Michael did a, a views from the long box with Michael. Yes, I did. But Michael has been busy. 
Michael Bailey, not Michael Welland, because um, his, his lovely wife Rachel was involved in a car accident. Mm-hmm. So everyone here at Hey Kids HQ sends the positive vibes down through the interwebs. We all hold hands. Yeah, and think positive thoughts yeah. uh, to tour Rachel and hope that she gets well soon. Uh, um, emails. Yes, that's what you mentioned, wasn't yeah, it? It yeah. was. So our first email this night, mm-hmm. or day, or morning, or evening, or whenever you listen to this dribble, mm-hmm. is from Michael Bradley. Who I do believe mm-hmm. is a long-time listener. Mm-hmm. First-time emailer. Uh, we love first-time emailers. <laughs> we we love popping that cherry door. But, as we all know, they're only good ones. Yes, but everyone remembers the first time uh, Michael's email is entitled A Look Back at Tomorrow. Hello, Leyland's. Hello, Michael. Bradley. Not Bailey. Not Leyland. No. It's all a bit confusing, isn't it? Just a little bit. It's all a bit wibbly wobbly. Timey wimey. You know, he's not. We can't call him Mikey Mike B now. Because he's Mikey Mike B as well? Exactly. No, there's only one Mikey Mike B. Mikey Mike B and Michael B. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. Yes, there's only one Mikey Mike B. There is. Yes. Um, regarding Andrew's comments about For Tomorrow, says Michael, in episode 16, No More Heroes Part 2, I offer a defence. Episode 16 of Volume 2, I believe that must be. I like the idea that Michael's keeping... Well, it did, didn't it? I like the idea that Michael's keeping track of the numbering system, because we We don't. (laughs) I think I number the actual episodes, so that they're all in order. On the computer. Maybe that's about how he knows it. Probably, because it will be in the file then. But as a rule, you can listen to this tripe in any order, really. In fact, we actively encourage you to just bounce around Quantum Leap style. Yeah, yeah, listen to this show, then go back and listen to Final Crisis, and then listen to uh, No More Heroes, and then go back and listen to Couch Potatoes. Mm, Yeah, and Secret Wars, and all that. Just bounce around Mm. in time. And if we've done our job properly, there will be no way of telling the difference. Because we like to create this ambiance of a timeless show. Except when we get a little bit topical. Except when we get a little bit topical. Which we very rarely do. But anyway, Michael's email continues. Well, defence might be a bit of a strong word. But a reply, nonetheless. Having read Superman comics monthly for years, nay, decades, I, of course, read For Tomorrow as it was published. In the fall of 2007, with some distance from the original publication, I decided to take look, a look back at the story, giving it a fresh reread and hopefully gaining a new perspective. After doing so, I posted these thoughts on a comic book forum. I now offer them to you. That's very kind of it. Mm-hmm. I hope he's not charging us. Yeah. Reuse material. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong if you can make money from the same thing twice. Yeah. There ain't nothing wrong with that. So he is a first time emailer, but it's all stock footage. <laughs> He's the Battlestar Galactica of emails. Yeah. It's that shot of the Vipers launching down the tube every single week. For quite a while now, Michael said, I've wanted to reread Brian Azzarello's For Tomorrow arc that ran from Superman 204 to 215. I didn't care for the story when it first came out. Like many readers, I found it boring with a pace that makes snails look impressively fast. But with the delays the book suffered at the time of its publication, I wondered if that didn't have some effect on my view of the book and the pacing. So over the last few days, I've reread the arc in its entirety. At the heart, I don't think the core plot of For Tomorrow is such a bad one. 
Superman using the Phantom Zone technology to create a fallback plan in case Krypton's fate should ever befall Earth sounds to me like something Superman would do. Plus I like it because it's very much like the pre-crisis Superman who was often performing various experiments or creating things over at the fortress. So the story itself isn't bad. But here's the problem. Azarello took 12 issues to tell it. As a result, the pacing is painfully slow. The story is far too drawn out. We get page after page after page of Superman standing around talking to a priest. The priest gets his own subplot that has nothing to do with the story. Oh, there's a sorceress too. What? For Tomorrow should have been edited down to four issues. Everything involving Father Daniel, Halcyon, the Earth, Wind and Fire Monsters, the Sentient Mouse Rushmore and the OMAC Project should have been removed. None of it adds anything to the story, and instead just drags it down. With these changes, everything in issues 204 through 211 could have been compressed into one issue. Then issues 212 through 215, this is where 95% of the meat of the story happens, could have been compressed to three issues. I don't have a problem with dialogue-heavy books. In fact, I prefer it to the superficial issue-long fight scenes. However, five consecutive issues of talking, which is what the first five parts of For Tomorrow are, isn't becoming of a Superman comic. Plus, this doom and gloom, self-doubting attitude is not Superman. Even worse, Azarello's Superman comes off as arrogant. How Azarello was able to write Superman as arrogant and self-deprecating at the same time is something I'll never know. But getting back to the story itself. For Tomorrow is not an arc I would recommend. The core concept is great, but the story was just poorly done. And I thought that was exceptionally good. Very well done. Very well written, very well thought through, very concise. Yeah. Which I like in my reviews. Very, very good, Michael. We applaud you. Now back to the present. I reread the story again a year or so ago and came mostly to the same conclusion. Michael, Michael, dude, you're a glum for punishment. <laughs> reading it again? I've not been able to bring myself to read that tripe again since it came out. I've not read it once. My memory of it is it was boring as hell and I've not been able to go back to it. You know I should read it. You should? Yeah. To see if you disagree with anybody. Cover a show on it. Let's not. We did Civil War eventually. You said we did Civil War eventually. We've not done Civil War yet. But we kind of have. We, we're, we're working on it as yeah, this yeah. is recorded. We've we decided to we do it. done it yet. Eventually. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So anything is possible. Anything is possible, yes. Please don't misunderstand. Superman fighting Wonder Woman, continues Michael, a sentient Mount Rushmore, Earth, Wind and Fire Monsters, all neat ideas, but they seem to serve more as a showcase for Jim Lee's art than the story itself. I think you've hit upon the very problem with For Tomorrow. Jim Lee. It's a Jim Lee art book. Irrespective, it would sell like gangbusters, whether or not who wrote it, wouldn't it? So was Hush. Yeah, but Hush works as a narrative as well. It works as a greatest hit summer blockbuster narrative, mm. but at least it works as a narrative. But it's still a Jim Lee art book. Yeah, but that's fine. You even bought the Jim Lee pencil. Yeah, version. well, that's fine when there is at least a narrative hook underneath it. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with Connor as a summer blockbuster, but at least there's a story there. The same with The Rock. Mm. But when you get to Transformers, where even Michael Bay has managed to make robots hitting each other boring, how did he pull that off? It's an impressive feat. Sheila Booth. Sheila Booth and Sheila Megan Booth. Fox. Yeah. The charisma vacuum that is both of them put together. Sheila Booth and his acting partner of Planker Wood. <laughs> so it's the same with For Tomorrow. At least Hush. Yes, it's a summer blockbuster movie. Yes, it's it's very pretty to look at with lots of special effects and such. But at least there is reading material there. Mm. At least you're never bored when you're reading Hush. Mm. For Tomorrow is just dull. And the writers also remembered it a few years down the line. Yes, whereas For Tomorrow just seems to get big, expensive absolutes. And yet I can't find a single person who's liked it. Mm. Which is very strange. 
Eccles' email continues, Additionally, with nearly a decade of distance now from the story's original publication, it seems even more clear that the OMAC stuff was likely shoehorned in, or at the very least Azarello's original ideas rewritten, to tie in with then-current DC continuity, and the build-up to the oh-so-important Infinite Crisis. I'm not completely willing to hold this against the story, however. We comic fans love our continuity, and it would be hypocritical to turn that against the story when they actually try to use it. Another problem, using the word more loosely now, is the story's introduction of the post-crisis continuity's fourth, yes, fourth, General Zod. But as this neither hurts nor helps the story when taking it as its own tale, it becomes more of a problem for us comic fans hyper-attentive to continuity. So yeah, there are a lot of problems with Fall Tomorrow, and it's deserving much of the criticism it gets, particularly in regards to the glacier-like pace and six issues of Superman merely talking. But the basic plot, the core, of Superman, the core idea sorry, of Superman proactively creating a backup plan, for lack of a better word, to prevent a repeat of Krypton on Earth? That I love, and that I will defend. If only it weren't the treasure-laden inferno surrounded by one-eyed Willie's death traps that is the rest of the arc. <laughs> From Michael Bradley. That was good, that, Michael. I enjoyed reading that. It's not made me want to read for tomorrow again. Uh, Michael does The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Siegel and Schuster's Mythmakers and Green Lantern's Light. Three podcasts that are mentioned in his, his footer signature thing, so I thought it worth mentioning. I don't believe I have a trailer for any of those, Michael. If you wish to send them my way, we'll be glad to plug your show. Or if you send the website, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will do that very thing. Thank you, Michael. Our next email is from Luke Giaconetti. Interestingly, Luke yeah. Giaconetti today met the challenge. He has emailed us today with an email about the show that went up today. Ah. This is not that email, ah. because we have our little no two emails yes. from one person in one show. Some say he sent the same email. <laughs> Some say Luke Giaconetti managed to get an email to the show on the day that the show went up. Some also say that you will not be hearing that email for another week. <laughs> All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. War Comics, The Marvel Method and The DC Method is the subject heading. Two of my favourite jolly old blighters. Whatever. <laughs> yes, thank you very much for that, Lou. Ah, War Comics. A very misunderstood genre, as we discussed a bit during the New Frontier episodes, but one ripe with both quality comic stories and some of the most startling depictions of combat ever seen in print. I was very excited to hear you guys talk about some classic Silver Age war books. Well, we hope we didn't disappoint I've not read much of Sergeant Fury, the book generally having the tag of being a Marvel-style war book, more so than its more highly regarded distinctive competition from across town. And his enthusiasm for the series has made me more interested in seeking out more of it. I will always love Dick Ur's work on the title, as it was his signature title, and one he brought a great visual dynamism to. He could showcase the frenzy of combat as well as the quiet moments of respite. Ur's is often... That other artist people think of when it comes to Silver Age Marvel, but to me he's right up there with Kirby, Ramita, Heck and Wood. I also always dug the integrated unit aspect of the book, how delightfully Marvel Silver Age, as well as the touches of humour which Lee brought to the scripts. This is similar to how Larry Harmer would bring all sort of off-kilter, almost gallows-style sense of humour to his dialogue on G.I. Joe some 20 years later. Not surprising, as Harmer was also a veteran. Also neat is the idea that Fury was existing in stories being told at two different periods at once. We tend to think of things like Morrison's action comics taking place five years earlier than the other books, but still starring the same character to be a modernist concept. But Stan was doing it in the 60s. Stan was doing everything before everybody else did. It's more and more you realise how innovative the guy was as you read more comics from that time. 
I'd love to see an honest-to-goodness Howling Commandos movie. Captain America gave us a tease. Now we need the full entree. I was thinking about this. Did you write it? I did not write it, no, but I came up with this idea. You could have a Howling Commandos movie and not contradict Captain America. Okay. Okay, here's how it goes. Right. You establish that the Nick Fury who is operating in now in the now times is the grandson is the great grandson of right. the Nick Fury from World War 2 so we could have the cigar chomping eye by eye pie eye pie <laughs> eye patch wearing Caucasian Nick Fury right. and the Samuel L. Jackson Nick Fury because this so would you be go with a story that Marvel now has given where Nick Fury had a thing with her didn't I come up with this idea before Marvel now did it I don't know I think I did Oh, anyway, okay, let's give you. Anyway, all right, we'll give okay. me the benefits of the doubt because you know I'm here and they're not here to defend themselves. But anyway, so we do that. Right. We establish that the commandos were not the people in Captain America because it never called them the Howling Commandos. Dum Dum Dugan goes wahoo at some point. Right. But what you establish is that that team that Cat met up with right. were actually a, a specially selected commando unit on a special mission. Which would explain why A, Nick Fury wasn't there, right. and B, they weren't the full Howling Commandos. Oh, Nick Fury not on a specialist mission? It was a special... He's over in England. Oh, okay. The Howlers are assigned to England. Right. So the fact that Dum Dum Dugan wasn't in England right. gave me this idea. So that was a special covert mission of selected people. But the Howling Commandos are all out there and Dum Dum Dugan went back to them after this mission was over. So you could if you wanted to right. still have Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos in Marvel movie continuity okay. without treading over what Captain America established and while still having Sam Jackson in the future because you just established there was some kind of interracial marriage at some point in the past 60 years at the end of it does Nick Fury wake up from a coma to be meet, uh, met by his grandson <laughs> yes welcome that, to that, the Avengers that initiative that is exactly what happens <laughs> or he could have the super secret serum that keeps him young but then you could contradict in every Avengers movie so far. Yeah, you, you, so you just wouldn't have him in Unless he's times. been doing an Avengers Incorporated and it was revealed to be the secret... We're just getting far, marker. far too complicated. <laughs> oh, you then do Fury Max, that yeah. Dennis's series. So what's the... Nick Fury's going around with the Avengers. Other Nick Fury's yeah, going around... Other Nick Fury has an 18th certificate movie <laughs> where he goes around just blowing people away and, and you know... Doing what Nick Fury did in that series. I think series. you can have a Nick Fury too. It's a Vietnam Nick Fury movie. Oh yes, yeah. I'm loving this. I'm loving this pitch. Send it to Marvel. Henceforth, <laughs> hence with fourth with. That's what I meant. An 18 rated, rated Vietnam Nick yeah. Fury movie. Yeah, I'd watch that. Who would we cast as Nick Fury? David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> David Hasselhoff in yeah. Vietnam. Yeah, it's okay. And Luke's email continues. I need to get the Fury collections to go with all my DC War comics. Speaking of DC War comics, you don't get any more hardcore than Sergeant Rock. I don't think any character embodies the entire genre of War comics more than Rock. Cubit's humanist artwork is also definitive for the genre for me. This is another situation where I may be more prone as I am a known Cubit fan. The team of Cubit and Bob Kaniger was amazingly effective at telling these stories and were equal parts comic book action and war is hell moralising, but remaining entertaining and engaging reads decades after their publishing. DC's war comics, especially those which Kaniger had a hand in either as writer or editor, tended to be a little more in the vein of what I call anti-heroic storytelling. Not that Rock is an anti-hero, but the stories themselves are anti-heroic. 
There is bravery, strength and determination, but Rock is no hero. Instead, he's the epitome of soldier. Rock's focus on the mission is something which would be explored throughout the run, including a personal favourite story of mine, Our Army at War 97, What Makes a Sergeant Run, where Rock and Kanaga wrestle with the concept of what a sergeant means to the men in his command. While Easy Company had to seize a heavily armed and defended farmhouse in the French countryside. The members of Easy would change over time, much more so than the members of the Commandos, so we did not get to know the members of Easy that well. The Iron Major would reappear a few times over the years in the pages of our Army at War, one of the few recurring villains for Rock and Easy, beyond, you know, the Nazis, and would also pop up in The Brave and the Bold. Great show, guys, really enjoyed this one. Can't wait for some 2000 AD. Drocking awesome, Luke. Well, we're glad you enjoyed that one, Luke. That one was for you because we knew that you are our big fans of War Comics. And also, without you, Mr. Luke, Mr. Giaconetti, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, sir... There would be no War There wouldn't have episode. been no War Comic episode. So... You know what I realised we still haven't done? What? I forget who wanted us to do it, but we haven't done the G.I. Joe episode yet. I think that was Luke and uh, J. David Weeder. Fair enough. They both said they wanted us to do a G.I. Joe episode, which I'm open to. Yeah. I'm opening to do a Joe episode. We just need to read some G.I. Joe. Well, I've, I've got that first comic that I picked up from the 50p bins, which was a reprint of the first G.I. Joe. I'm willing to cover that. Okay. And then we could just find a, another one-off issue that's any good. In fact, I'm throwing that open. Throwing that open. Because we've got all the G.I. Joe Marvel comics. <laughs> Digitally. <coughs> oh, sorry. There's something in my throat, though. So, um, Luke or J. David Weeder, if you want to pick an issue of Marvel's G.I. Joe, from I think we've got the first hundred or so issues, that is good, pick it, and we will do a G.I. Joe episode in the future. Because I want to see what all the fuss is about. Because I'll be honest, I thought the film was, other than having Rachel, Rachel Nichols in it, a bit crap. I still find it funny, though, that with this, our Transformers, they're taking toys really seriously. I th- that's one of the criticisms about the new G.I. Joe movie, isn't it? It's so taking a line of toys seriously. Star Wars, dude! Was that based on a line of toys? No, it's true, but it's, you know. There's nothing wrong with basing something on toys. Micronauts is very good. That's based on toys. It's how, how seriously you treat the project. Secret Wars. Yeah, <laughs> Secret Wars was best on toys. Yeah. Our next email is entitled Superman Wrap Up. It's from Chris Keith. Oh, great Leylands! I like that. I like it too. I like being oh great. Refer to us ourselves as the great lady. Yeah. Uh, the arts or the noughties. As I thought about the deck, I had a few random Superman-y thoughts. Superman Returns. Marsden, the poor bastard. Let's review. X-Men. Pretty much in a love triangle with Wolverine the whole time. You made that sound a bit wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Is he the love triangle with Wolverine? Oh, I'm Jean Grey. Right. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um... Gets ripped apart by crazed redhead. The Notebook loses Rachel McAdams to Ryan Gosling. Yes, it's a chick film, but Jim Rockford. It's Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Enchanted loses the girl to the nerdy guy from Can't Buy Me Love whilst carrying a sword, no less. And then Superman returns. He plays second fiddle to Superman. The guy just cannot win. At least give him a lipstick smeared smelling of vodka cat grant as a silver medal. The man flew a plane that saved Superman's life, after all. Oh, that's that's Cyclops. Yeah, that's James Marsden. The funniest scene in Enchanted is he stood in front of a big billboard advertising Superman Returns. Okay. He is in Superman Returns. Yes. Amy Adams, who is in Enchanted, is the new Lois Lane. Everything comes Everything back to Superman. Everything comes back to Superman, <laughs> as Michael Bailey would have it. Mm-hmm. Smallville, let me say that I like Alice and Mac. 
And Good. that's it. Yeah, that's moving on. <laughs> you know, despite the fact that her baby teeth should have long ago fallen out, she has chiclet teeth once she knows she can't look away. Still, she has cute going, and that counts. As for Chloe Sullivan, yeah, just once. Once in the ten years of Smallville, I wanted Clark to ever so casually thump her in the forehead, being careful so as not to launch her into orbit, and casually explain that when it came to the men that she either dated or was infatuated with, Clark was always right and she was always wrong. No one, I mean no one, could possibly end up with the sheer number of thieves, serial killers, homicidal rapists, supervillains, etc. as Chloe. But every time, despite the fact that the guy is clearly bad news, Clark is just jealous. You know, because he's not right every time. The difference between Lois and Chloe, Chloe gets an advance warning of the danger and still puts herself in harm's way. Annoying. President Lex, Andy, I can't agree enough. I'm going to stop there. Yeah, because I, that, that's there's no way need. you can improve on that. Yeah. <laughs> Next email. Stupidest concept in the history of comics. The guy destroyed Metropolis, yet all of this information is just wiped away. This occurs in America, where a president's relations with an intern cause impeachment hearings, and Lex is president. I need to hurry and reread that area because I want to see if Lucifer ran against him, as that would be the only way the guy can capture the popular vote. So dumb. Even then, I reckon Lucifer would have won. Probably. Ed McGuinness. He grew on me throughout his time, and now that goofy, cartoony Superman is one of my favourite portrayals. Yeah, I love Ed McGuinness's Superman. It is something that, that did have to grow on you over time. Yeah. But I just like Ed McGuinness's work. His, his cartoony whole it's red stuff is better over time. Yeah. It's not the same cartoony level, but it's really detailed. He's very. It's, he's much underrated. The Hulk's uh, one of the best stuff. Yeah. Know. We need to read Nova. See if that's any good. Joker, continues Chris. You guys referenced Joker and diplomatic immunity. When did he get immunity from Karak? If you go back and read The Death in the Family, he got his diplomatic immunity from Iran. He even met the Ayatollah Khomeini. And again, somebody's wrote in with that name and I butchered it. <laughs> which was the strangest panel in a comic that I'd ever seen. Well, at the time, now I get gay porn on the TV set screen for a guy saga. Yeah, but it's only there if you know it's there. I know. Apart from that, yeah. And now Michael Saley mentions... Yeah, yeah, the second ones, yeah. A lot worse. Yeah. yeah. Or better, depending on your sexual proclivity. <laughs> We're equal opportunities today. Yeah, we are. You know? uh, and now Michael Bailey mentions the exact same panel reference, alas, I am late. No, it doesn't matter. We're always happy to have other people in. Dialogue by Doom! Your coverage of Superman Spider-Man was interesting, but... And I know that this statement might be considered blasphemy and will result in my being killed by Doom bots. Victor Von Doom, shut the f*** up. No villain talks this much. I was just about worn out from reading the endless speeches delivered every two seconds. Painful. In the time he monologued, Superman could have gone to every single alternative universe, recruited Superman to form an army to defeat Doom, and probably stop off for dinner and dessert. Your impression of his voice is funny, though. <laughs> Doom likes it. Actually, I was going to say, Doom does not like your attitude, Chris Keith. Doom will find you. Doom knows where you live. Doom will offer you free Doom care health benefits. Yes, because Latveria has all of those things, as we learned last week. It does. Yeah. Sounds like a great place to visit. It sounds, yeah, you'll never leave. <laughs> Indestructible costume and human Superman. Okay, I've made this point before, but you mentioned that the pre-crisis indestructible costume and the issue was Superman has no powers. It's obvious that the writers never took a physics class because it wouldn't matter if the costume was indestructible. It's cloth. It's not vibranium. Shoot human Superman while he's wearing an indestructible costume. You have an indestructible costume and a dead Superman. No clothing is going to prevent a bullet from turning his bone to powder or cause internal bleeding. 
That goes for the cape. It's not Kevlar, which would still hurt. It's cloth, which would not slow a bullet. It just wouldn't be unwound or tore. Superman would be hamburger, but he would look rather dapper for his funeral. (laughs) It's a valid point, but here's my counter-argument. It's a comic. That is... Alright, that's better than mine. No, my counter-argument is we don't know... Right. What Kryptonian cloth is made of? Ah. See, his pre-crisis, his clothes were made of the stuff that came to Earth with him. Kryptonite. We don't know what kryptonite kryptonite cloth. I would just kill him. We don't know what krypton Krypton-cloth cloth is made of. It could be very a strong as a bullet. Bolt. Yeah, it's possible. I'm not saying it's likely, mm-hmm. but it's possible. That's why it always irks me when people refer to it as spandex with Superman, because it's like, no, his, his costume is made of Kryptonian stuff. This is so not spandex. Yeah, you don't know what Kryptonian cloth's like, mm-hmm. so that's just, you know. It's a good point, though. <laughs> they obviously didn't take a science lesson. Um, Chris Key, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, P.S. The inclusion of the Buffy clips has led to the unforeseen result of my wife actually watching Buffy to its conclusion and moving on to Angel. Not sure how that happened, but kind of cool. Oh, dude, you need to watch Angel and Buffy concurrently. Same, moving on to it. There's crossover episodes. You know, who's, who's going on about tie-ins now? Yeah, it's you know, it's important to an extent. For the, for the first season of Angel, it's important. Yeah, there's a couple of references thereafter. There's like when Willow shows up at the end of series three. Okay. When Angel goes to visit visit Buffy at the end of season four. Okay. That all ties in with the, the overall Buffy arc, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. PPS, Chris Rackson's Doctor Who, liking it up to the Dalek episode and really enjoying it. Not saying I'll go back and watch the oldies, but I'm liking these stories quite a bit. I think Dalek's the best one. Best Chris Rackleson one? Yes. Yes. Yeah, fair play. Yes. Well, they actually made the Daleks scurry again. Mm. I was talking about that the other day, actually. Yeah. Me and a group of friends were talking about Doctor Who. We were actually talking about um, our favourite companions. And who would that be, Clara well, Oswin lover? It, it, well, it was, a, it was a tie between the three of us. It was a tie <coughs> between um, Oswin or um, Amy. It Clara. Was between the two. But, so we were talking about the old ones. Saying how that moment you realise Bad Wolf's in every Christopher Eccleston episode and you go back and watch it. And it is, yeah, it's written on the wall or it's and in somewhere And we talk about the Dalek game, like when they used to do games and webisodes and stuff on the website. Yeah. They did a game where you play as the Dalek in that museum, killing everything. Do you? Yeah. In Van, Van Staten, wasn't he? Yeah. Van Staten's museum. Yeah, it is an excellent episode, Dalek. Um, the thing with the old ones is, um, Chris, if you go back and watch the old ones, you do have to put yourself in the mindset that the BBC's budget for Doctor Who Mm. was perhaps not very large. But, that being said, there are some excellent old episodes. Tell you what you do. Listen to Who True Freaks. Because I'm on it. (laughs) And I'm on one of them, I think. One or two of them. Uh, And watch the episodes that they cover. Because, by and large they are covering some of the better ones. Mm. That was raised on the Tom Baker Doctor Who because of you. Yeah, Tom Baker is awesome. Right, we're at the 30 minute mark which is the cut off for emails except when it isn't. Yeah. So we're going to end the emails there. Thank you for everyone who emailed in. It is always nice to hear from you. Mm -hmm. And we will take a break before we wrap up our farewell to Hellblazer. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me, listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? 
I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we're back. Indeed we are, after that lovely trailer. Um, yeah, so, we bring you the third and final part of Farewell Hellblazer. Uh, we'd always intended to return to John Constantine for his final adventure, so although there has been a gap between Farewell Hellblazer Part 2 and Part 3, it's not our fault. which we did early this year, we're returning rather earlier than we'd originally planned. One of the reasons for this is we wanted to look at the final issues of Hellblazer and the first issue of Constantine whilst they were still relatively current, something we don't normally care about on this show. By and large, we try to make an evergreen podcast. But with Constantine, we both felt that we wanted to talk about it whilst the bile was still fresh, mm. didn't we? Hellblazer has been, for me, one of those series I discovered early on, followed for the large chunks, dropped out, dropped back in again, dropped out again, etc. But the fondness I had for the character was always there. For me, Hellblazer is Vertigo's flagship book. Whilst the case can be made for Sandman owning that title, and I have mentioned before that Preacher is my favourite finite comic series ever, Hellblazer was there month in, month out, doing what I call a man's job of representing what Vertigo should be, and unfortunately frequently wasn't. Now, we love the superhero set as much as anybody, which I think we've more than proved on more than one occasion. But every now and again, as a reader, I crave a different meal. In comics, my fallback was always John Constantine. However, Vertigo was a shadow of its former self when news of the cancellation broke. News had reached us of creators being stiffed on their contract, creator ownership, always a big part of Vertigo's appeal to the creative community, and the opportunity to own their own characters, a concept that could end up being quite lucrative. Under Dandy Dio's rule, however, reports were made that Vertigo wasn't quite as creator-friendly as it used to be. Now, normally I don't put any stock in gossip sites, but a number of things happened, slowly, over time, that painted a fuller picture. Firstly, Garth Ennis, creator-owned book The Boys, whilst not Vertigo, was canned. Secondly, numerous big-name creators who had made Vertigo what it was, the aforementioned Ennis with Preacher, Warren Ellis with Transmetropolitan, Brian K. Vaughan with Why the Last Man and others, were suddenly setting up big, finite, creator-owned series elsewhere. And the final nail in the coffin that was Vertigo as a creative source came about with the resignation of editor Karen Berger as official editor-in-chief of the line on December 3rd, 2012. Berger was instrumental to Vertigo's success, having lured the talent that would make Vertigo, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison et al., to DC in the latter half of the 80s. Under her reign, Vertigo would produce work that was, if not always successful, uh, was at least thought-provoking and interesting. Granted, not everything they put out was a hit, but titles like Preacher, Transmetropolitan, Sandman, 100 Bullets, Why the Last Man, and even transplanted books like Animal Man and Swamp Thing made Vertigo a force to be reckoned with, and even though I didn't always like what they did, I was glad they were there doing it. But under the new regime, Berger had become increasingly disillusioned, even going so far as to allegedly tell creator Douglas Rushkoff not to take his creator-owned graphic novel to Vertigo. Apparently, Berger's decision to leave the line was in part due to the decision to cancel Hellblazer with issue 300, which was announced on November 8th, 2012. It was kind of 
She had good reason to do it. Vertigo was Karen Berger, and she was essentially watching her baby slowly die. Slowly being slaughtered before her eyes. Yeah, yeah. that's the, the rumoured stories we've heard, isn't With it? With a big Didio grin on it. Yeah. Ah, mainstream five-year timeline. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he... Why the last man doesn't fit into our mainstream timeline? <laughs> it doesn't fit into DC continuity. That's true. Um, reaction to the cancellation of Hellblazer was not mixed. Mm. Almost universal condemnation of the decision followed from fans and creators, with everybody bemoaning the loss of the book. Purely in terms of sales, the decision was understandable, and maybe if everyone who moaned about it, and I include myself in this criticism, had been buying the book, maybe it wouldn't have been cancelled. Issue 291 sold 10,000 copies, whilst the New 52 version of Constantine appearing in the Justice League Dark book, of which Michael will talk further later, was doing around 33,000. Whilst the cancellation announcement caused a bump, Issue 300 sold 12,000 copies, which still made it Vertigo's best-selling comic, it was not enough to save the book. Didio, for his part, was unrepentant. This was not an easy decision, and I'd like to say there is a natural conclusion to the Constantine storyline in the Hellblazer series. He wrote in traditional talking a lot, but not saying anything doublespeak. Number 300 will be as special as you would expect it to be. Hellblazer's had a long and incredibly successful run, and that's the tip of the hat to all the great creators that have worked on the book over the years. The new Constantine series will return him back to his roots in the DCU and hopefully be the start of another incredible run. Five-year timeline. Essentially saying, I couldn't kill Dick Grayson, so I'm killing everything you love. Yeah, pretty much. Um, No, essentially that doesn't say anything, does it? That says we can make more money from this in the new 52. That's all that says to me. We can make more money, but it damn well won't be good enough. No. So, what of the conclusion to Hellblazer? Mm. Peter Milligan, writer of the really rather good Vertigo series Shade the Changing Man, which ran in the mid-90s and doesn't get anywhere near the plaudits it deserves as far as I'm concerned, has been writing the book since issue 250, and it introduced a good many changes into John's life. The most important of these was the introduction of Epiphany Greaves, who despite being a good 20... 40 years younger than the now 60-something John, ended up being his bride in issue 275. Which we covered. Which we did cover in Farewell Hellblazer 2. Yes, go back and listen to it. We were good. We were good. Nobody else is going to compliment us. No, no, no. Issue 298 of Hellblazer kicked off the Death and Cigarette storyline in February 2013. The cover by Simon Bisley is of a skeleton wearing John's trench coat, lighting up with a Zippo lighter whilst wearing a Constantine mask like the one Mike Myers wore in Halloween. As with the long tradition of Hellblazer, the cover is exceptionally good. What do you think of the cover, Michael? It's a neat cover, I guess. I'm not really fond of it, though. Why not? I don't know, it's just... Tintin Quiff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing a Tintin mask. He's wearing a Tintin mask, yeah. Like, um... Uh, Mike Myers wore a William Shatner mask. Yeah. He's wearing a Tintin mask. I don't like this new logo. Uh, I'll be honest, the, the logo, I, I didn't really pay much attention, to be honest. The still my favourite. Yeah. That's, that's the best one, though. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, part one, The Fates, was written by Peter Milligan with art by Giuseppe Camanolocoli <laughs> and Stefano Landini, as Michael has humorously referred to them before. Giuseppe. <laughs> yes. Um, I was on it actually on about you referring to them as the um, the... Asian sweatshop creative tea. Oh, right, with funny names. Oh, yeah. that's Constantine? <laughs> Wait till we get up to there. Oh, please do. DC sweatshop? Yeah. Uh, the story for part one is thus. John tells Epiphany he's going to die. The portents all point to it. 
To prove his point, he steps onto a train track, but, as predicted, the train jumps a track and closely misses John. Meanwhile, Epiphany's dad, Terry Greaves, is taking care of business. He's losing control, and the O'Reillys are no longer afraid of him. To this end, he's burying one of them in concrete. He wonders if he's past it, or if his freaky son-in-law has put some kind of spell on it. Back at the train crash, the fates wander around and pick off their victims. They discuss Constantine and that he knows his time is coming. Constantine catches a glimpse of them out of the corner of his eye, but Epi distracts him by helping out and commenting how stupid this was. John concurs and heads off to see old friend Jazz for a wee dram. He drops by his favourite haunts and thinks about the past. Old friends, long gone. He spends time with Piffy, who is in denial and can't understand why Master Mage, slick-talking, con-man, smart-mouthed John Constantine can't find a way out of this. The truth is, John is out of time. He tells Piffy to guard his ashes after he's cremated and keep them safe. Piffy pops off to see her dad, but he isn't really able to do anything. When his daughter strops off, he's half a mind to do Constantine himself. The day arrives. Constantine covers the flat in protective signals for the supernatural threats. Piffy has a gun for the mortal enemies. As Piffy gets a drink from the kitchen, John answers the door. This is for Terry, the man says, before John is shot at point-blank range. Ain't coming back from that one. Or is he? Ooh. Ooh. Let's keep him dangling on that particular score. Uh, the story opens with John stood in the middle of a train track trying to explain to Piffy what he's doing. I did like that it was pointed out to John that this was a dumb move and his agreement is satisfying in that he agrees, but not for the reason that we think. He points out that he could have been injured and left in a coma for the last five days of his life, mm. which I did actually find was quite clever because it is, I've got five days to live. Yeah, but you could spend those five days you don't in, have to be in conscious. Yeah. yeah. You're still alive. So that was actually... I did actually think that was quite clever of him to point that out. Wait a minute. Yeah. I could have been hit by the train, mm. rendered unconscious, and then died in hospital five days' time. That's just stupid. <laughs> so I did like that they pointed that out. Mm. I thought, hmm, clever. The action is interrupted on page three, rather abruptly. Yeah. I thought. Um, by some setup where Terry Greaves is burying an enemy in concrete and moaning that uh, he's losing it. Maybe he's losing his touch and everybody's not afraid of him anymore because he's a big gangland boss. It's very cleverly set up mm. for what's going to be happening. Because this is the first time that he mentions being displeased with Epiphany's choice of husband in front of a specific person. I was going to say, it's not the first time he's... No, 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 but in the terms of this issue, there are two occasions where he sets this up. Mm. In front of, and that guy with the cap is front and centre both times that he says something negative about Constantine or wanting Constantine dead. So it, it doesn't signpost it. It doesn't have a big neon sign over it saying, this is going to be important, like it does in the New 52 versions. Mm. But it's very cleverly done. I thought that was very good. Pete Milligan at his finest. Page six. Because it's just a plane crash. Plane crash. Train crash for the rest of it. Um... I presume that this is the fates, which in Greek mythology were a triumvirate of goddesses. But here are only one woman and two men. Mm. So I didn't understand why they changed that or what the reason was. And they're only given two names, Lottie and Spinner. Does the other one have a name? Don't know. It's never mentioned in the story, is it? Because I did pour through this to have a look. Blue, green and orange. <laughs> of skinny bald fella because yeah. he's the one who doesn't seem to have any name uh, I liked him 
There was no real explanation of who they were. You get that they're the fates. That's it. There's lip service paid to the fact that one of the three's been mucking around in dreams, and that's what's tipped Constantine off. And but there is a contradiction in the dialogue. Lotte refers to the flat cap wearing one as Spinner, but on the next page, the skinny bald guy calls him Slipper, which I didn't get unless it was just a nickname for him. Maybe. Thought that was very strange. Uh, I don't think it's very Constantine-esque that his actions kill innocent people inadvertently. Like, he stood on the train track to prove he couldn't die, mm. but everyone else did because of that. Yeah, which is one of the interesting things about this story arc, in that throughout the entire run of Hellblazer, John's been a selfish bastard. Yeah. Frequently. Yeah. Even when he's trying to help somebody else, mm-hmm. there's always an angle in it for him. Mm-hmm. But the course of this three-issue story arc... Is him being a bastard to make someone else's life better. Until he gets to the end where he does a self- selfless act. With um, Gemma. Yeah. Does he, though? Yeah, he makes it her choice. Because he points it out to her that by doing what she eventually does, she's making that worse for herself. But he makes her do it anyway. He doesn't make her do it, is the point. He gives her the choice of doing it. So, he's letting her bury her own demons at the cost of potentially his own life. Yes, you're right. He does point out that by killing me, you could just make your life worse. Yeah. But ultimately, he leaves the choice to her. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he's performing a selfless act. And we've just ruined the conclusion of the We've not, because we've not said one. We're going to ruin it by the end of the episode anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, if you're following along with the narrative. Yeah, if you've never read these issues before, we've kind of... Well, the title's Death and Cigarettes. Yeah, so... But- he dies at the end of this issue, but so by saying what you just said, he gets better. <laughs> Death is not the obstacle at one. No, it isn't. No, it truly isn't. Um, John, of course, spots the fates out of the corner of his eye, and the game is afoot because he mentions on the next page that the fates were watching him, uh-huh. but he doesn't mention it to Epiphany, uh-huh. which I thought was quite nice. Uh, page nine, we get a lovely little scene with Chaz. Scenes with Chaz were always fun. I did like Chaz. Not in this uh, story arc, though. Um, no, this is alright. The scenes is... with Chaz and this left me crying like a girl. Did they really? The last one, yeah. Oh, that's quite sweet. Um, John has a rare moment of self-pity. Actually, it's not that rare, is it? <laughs> to be honest. Um, when he asks what he's done with 60 years of his life, Chaz's reply, I thought was really good. That, um, done. You've done whatever you well wanted to, which is more than most men can say. Hmm. I don't know why Chaz is Scouser, because I don't think he is. Which I thought was quite good. He's lived his life how he's wanted to live it. Yeah. And Chaz points that out to him. Very few of us get to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have mortgages to pay. Oh, for someone who's over 60 years old, he doesn't look it. He doesn't, no. Which is the problem of having several artists yeah. working on the same character. Sometimes he does look old. Simon Bisley, Tim Bradstreet. Whereas sometimes he doesn't. Like, here... Or Steve Dillon. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that he's supposedly aged 20 years mm. since I was last reading the book regularly. I mean, I've read it. Warren Ellis, i read some of Pete Gilligan's stuff, mm. and the issues that you asked me to cover last time. But he looks younger than that. He doesn't look any different, mm. really. I mean, he's got a scar on his face now. Which looks pretty badass. That he didn't have the last time I was reading it regularly. But yeah, he doesn't look 60. Mm. Maybe all that messing around with magic's de-aged him slightly. With a demon blood in him. Yeah, all that demon blood. That's a good retcon. Fair enough. I'll go with that. Uh, page 10, the scene in the Journey's End pub is funny with some lovely little nuggets of dialogue. John's allowed to smoke because he exercised the spirit of the demon that had OD'd on glue. 
the idea that the the ghost had possessed the landlady's glass eye is funny. Mm. And uh, some chancer in the pub sees that John's smoking, so he lights up himself, so the landlady throws a bucket of ice over him. <laughs> it's a bit of a contradiction saying that she lets John do it and she likes the pub smelling like an actual pub, but yeah, only lets John do it. No, is is there's some kind of law against it. So it's not really a contradiction. Fair she's enough. she's putting the fire out on him, the cigarette out on him. Mm-hmm. Whereas with John, she's, it's nice to have it smelling like a proper pub again. But there's still laws. But there's, the law is you're not allowed to smoke inside anymore. I do like it being called the Journey's End, though. Yeah. Well, what's the name of the pub at the end of it? No That's idea. got a, a what's it title as I well. I like the last panel on this page as well. Yeah. Just the cigarette. Yeah. Again, the dialogue's lovely. It's, um... All the fags I must have smoked in my time. Coughing sticks, my old man used to call them between coughing his guts up and lighting up another one. And the last panel is just a close-up of his cigarette burning down, mm. signifying his life ah, burning down you to the end. Student, you. Yeah, <laughs> thought that was clever. Very clever. The art, I don't, I don't, I've not mentioned much about the art in my, um, in my synopsis, but it's, it's good without drawing attention to itself. Mm. Which is neat. I found this artist a bit weird, because I always really liked him on Hellblazer. Uh, but never liked his stuff on Amazing Spider-Man. Giuseppe, did he do some Amazing Spider-Man? Yeah. yeah I don't remember he was him one doing of, Amazing Spider-Man. He was one of Dan Slott's three recurring artists. Was he? Yeah. No, I really don't remember. But I really didn't like it. Oh, but right. it was it was only doing the credits that I noticed it was the same guy. Right. Maybe I just didn't read the credits in those Spider-Man yeah, issues. Uh, on page 12, uh, John makes a reference to Garth Ennis's first arc, Dangerous Habits. Yeah. It won't be the Siggies that nail me into my box. They tried, though. My God, they've tried. They t- nurtured a nice fat tumour in me, all right. How long ago was that? A lifetime. Several bloody lifetimes. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of references to past stories. It's not, none of them are blatant, though. No, that actually makes sense within context. The mm-hmm. cigarettes that killed his father won't be what kill him. Yeah. Which, you know, and I did like that. Again, it's not a blatant reference to Dangerous Habits. If you don't get that that's what that's a reference to, it doesn't matter. Story goes on without it. But if you do get it. But if you do get it, it's a nice little nugget of continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite intrigued by the fact that on page 13, John even shags in his trench coat. <laughs> I didn't. John, take it off at he, least once, dude. He only just got it back, you know? Yeah, he just got it back in a previous storyline, didn't he? The, the devil's trench coat. Yeah. Um, it seems to disappear in the next panel. Uh, she takes it off quicks a flash. Does she? Yeah. It's not the only thing she's took off <laughs> in these panels. Um... It's actually quite a touching scene between Epiphany and John. Um, and especially where he takes her to do all the touristy things that he's never took her to do before. Mm. Like going on the London Eye where they sit drinking champagne like any other tourists. And John discusses what to do with his ashes. Once again, though, it does kind of um, bring up the argument that he's he's doing the good thing, but he's still being a bastard about it. Yeah. He's doing what she wanted, but she's always going to have the memory of being really upset. Yeah. Well, the facial expression in the bottom of that panel uh, where he says, after my funeral, go and see Stevens. He'll give you my ashes. If he asks for more money, thread to torch his grass apples. I've already paid him off to make sure my ashes aren't mixed with the others the way ashes usually are. And it's a facial expression, though, where he's just talking about this one matter-of-factly. Yeah. He's going to die. When I die, this is what you need to do. And she's just broken up. And it's all conveyed in that panel of artwork. So, whilst Giuseppe Camionoli, if that's how you pronounce his name, may not be the flashiest artist in the world, sometimes you don't want flashy. Mm. Hellblazer didn't thrive on flash. 
Halberd ever thrived on being getting under your skin and being quite subtle. Mm. Apart from when you got big panels of demons, or when Garth Ennis wrote anti-royalist stories, <laughs> which were anything but subtle. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, mm. the book thrived on. I, I learned that kind something of here as well. Did you? What did you learn? Well, I, I learned that ashes get mixed up. Yeah, I didn't know that before I read this story. But then you think about it, it's so uh, it makes, it sense, makes yeah. perfect sense. Because like but it's something you don't think of. Because nah, well, you're dead, so you <laughs> don't. <know. laughs> yeah. Can't think of it when you're dead. To you, you're just meeting a new person. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, you get page sixteen. You get another seemingly random scene with Piffy's dad, which turns out to be more than it seems. And I did love where she's trying to tell him that he's seeing signs about his own death and his responses. I see signs all the time. It's called getting old. Mm. <laughs> so that was very funny. Milligan's dialogue was just wonderful all the way through this. Absolutely fantastic. Um, page 17, Piffy takes John for a physical, which leads to a wonderfully funny bit about why he wasn't dead years ago. Mm. The doctor says, Mrs. Constantine, on my initial examination, based on what you tell me about your husband's lifestyle, I don't know why Mr. Constantine wasn't dead and buried 20 years ago. And he should have been. Yeah. Dangerous habit should have killed him. Was that 20 years ago? Yeah. More or less, mm. give or take. 1993, yeah, it would have been about 93, 92, wasn't it? Or would it have been It would have been around the 80s, because he finished it and moved on to Preacher, which was the 1990 to 95, and then hit... Preacher hadn't finished when you were born. No, it started when I was born, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, it, would, it could have been the, so it could have been the late 80s. Beginning of the 90s. Yeah. Right. Okay. Roughly 20 years then. Fair enough. Um, the ending, I do have to say, John opening the door on page 21 when he knows what's going to happen seemed remarkably dumb for such an intelligent guy. Yeah. Unless yeah. he was like, get it over with. Well, maybe he had this, the, the whole plan wrapped up that he would fix everything and he had to die to fix everything. Yeah, he's planning something for after he's died. Mm. So maybe he's getting to the point here. Yeah, because that does tie in with his overall plan, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So he's not being stupid here. No. He's actually ushering in the death <laughs> so he can get on with executing his plan. Mm. All right, fair enough. I'll buy that. Although I did find his line about the Jehovah's Witnesses hilarious. <laughs> yes, because that's clearly not the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> Brandishing the shotgun. That's <laughs> it. Um, I thought this was a fine issue. There is a feeling for long-term readers that we've been here before. And we have. Dangerous Habits contain much the same idea. John Mean made aware of the fact that he's going to die. Uh, that could be why he made that call back. Mm. Because he knows there are thematic similarities between the two storylines. Excuse me. The main difference here, however, is John's belief that this time it really is the end. And we're left with an issue that is quite the Debbie Downer. But not in a bad way. It's all as low-key as Hellblazer normally is. But the character moments shine through. The ending, despite being telegraphed throughout the book, is still shocking. And we're led to believe that it really is in this mundane way that we've said goodbye to John Constantine. What did you think of it, the first part of Death and Cigarettes? I liked it. It's just th this was the first time I actually had read it. Is it? Yeah, because I read so, it before. I was pretty. I was pretty surprised when they killed him off this early. Mm. Well, that's the point of the story. Mm. In rereading it, you do get that it is setting up. He wants to get past this and get to the bit that that he comes through. Mm. Where he comes through. Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, issue 299 followed this up, which normally happens with 298 and 299. It was cover dated March 2013, by the same creative team, including the cover by Simon Bisley. This time it's simply Piffy and John, who's nursing a pint, lying in the graveyard together. There is the shadow of a skull and crossbones playing across their face. Uh, with the red scar running down John's face and the way the skull shadow is drawn, it looks like he's going to a Kiss concert. Yeah. Oh, and look, in case you hadn't noticed, Arrow's on TV. Yeah. Hadn't noticed. Which is annoying me immensely. What, those Arrow adverts on yeah. the TV show itself? Just those banners at the top of the comments. Right, okay. Because the show's actually quite good. Yeah. But, yeah. I heard the rumours that uh, Arrow and the new Man of Steel might be interconnected. Really? That's a rumour. Well, that'd be quite cool, actually, what, for leaving the way for the Justice League movie. Well, DC's, we're totally not ripping off Avengers. Yeah, so that's the only problem, isn't it? Anything they do gonna now shadow, yeah. is going to just look like they're ripping off the Avengers. Mm. You know, if they'd had any brains, Superman the movie would have been followed by Batman, would have been followed by Superman 2, would have been followed by Batman 2, would have been followed by World's Finest, would have been followed by Wonder Woman, would have been followed by Green Lantern, Superman 3, 4, whatever. Batman 3. Like if you were in charge. Yeah, if I was in charge, that totally would have happened in 1981. <laughs> do See, the thing with that is, though, as kids... We were like, well, this is what's going to happen now. DC or Warner Brothers, Superman's been this massive success. We must get a Batman movie. We yeah. must get a Wonder Woman movie, and we didn't. So they've ordered themselves to blame. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're not talking about that. No. Part two of Death and Cigarettes is called Postmortem. As Epiphany tries to staunch the blood, an ambulance arrives, and the next few hours blur into one. But when all is said and done, and Epiphany has felt John slip away, she remembers, this is for Terry. She heads over to her father's, but Terry already has who did it trussed up in his basement. His lackey killed John simply because he thought Terry wanted him dead. Terry gives Piffy a gun, and she blows the culprit's head off. After John's spirit convinces Piffy to not commit suicide, she goes about the business of funeral arrangements. This being John, various demons show up to claim the body, but with a little help from Angie Spatchcock, reluctant help it has to be said, but nevertheless, the demon is dispatched. Piffy returns home to see Finn, John's nephew, who has his own tale of how JC ruined his life. The night's talking and drinking leads inevitably to the bedroom. The funeral goes well, and afterwards Piffy leaves them in the pub and returns to her empty flat. A flat that isn't that empty. A flat occupied by John Constantine. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, the first page, there was a line in the previous issue of how Epiphany thinks that Terry Greaves always makes it about him. And the first page of this where he learns that John Constantine is dead, mm. he makes it all about him. He I'm makes not. it, Epiphany will never forgive me. It's all about him. It's not about how his daughter's going to react to the fact that John's dead. It's all about Terry. Page three is fantastic because it really does manage to bring home an event such as this and how quickly it seems to pass whilst all the events that go on probably take place over a great deal of time. Mm. You've got Piffy trying to do CPR on John, the ambulance arrives, the next shot they're at the hospital, the next shot they're trying to operate on him, the next shot she's leaving hospital and John's dead. And the way that that's paced is wonderful. You do get the idea this is probably taking most of the evening, mm. possibly. But for her, it just seems like snap, snap, snap. And you only remember bits of it later on. So that was an exceptionally good piece of writing from Mr. Milligan. So she goes to Terry. I honestly didn't think she would blow him away. 
Really? I really didn't the first time I read this. Mm. And the panel where she does blow him away is blam. And the art is inside of the letters of the sound effects. It's very Eisner, Frank Millery. In fact, the only thing I would say that would have improved that I would have liked to have not been any art in the bits where there is no lettering. Mm. I think that would have been much better. But no, I, I really didn't expect Epiphany to kill him. I really liked it, though. Because um, it's one of those stories where everyone is as bad as the next person. That's Hellblazer. And, and it is that thing that separates it from the superhero comics. It separates it from everything. It's the, and it's things like this which you won't get in Constantine. No, you won't. No, you really won't. You won't get moral ambiguity in New 52. Because moral ambiguity is something for good writers. Yeah. And the New 52 can't do moral ambiguity. Um, but yeah, everybody in Hellblazer was frequently as bad as each other. Mm. John was never... He wasn't even an anti-hero. He wasn't the good guy, but he wasn't the bad guy. No, but there was... He wasn't particularly heroic. No. So I wouldn't pin the appellation anti-hero on him. There was that thing where no one was good, no one was bad, everyone was just normal. Everyone was people. You could, you could walk out the door and bump into the characters from this book. Yeah. And we do, pretty yeah. much every day. Oh, I like to think that I don't bump into somebody who's going to blow somebody's head off every day. Ah. But no, I was genuinely shocked by that, and it's rare that a, a comic actually shocks me nowadays. Mm. Um, the most recent one was an issue of Sergeant Fury. Was it? Where, yeah, where they kill off his girlfriend. You know, the Lady Harley that he met in the issue we talked about? Yeah. 20-odd issues down the line, she dies. And she dies off-panel. He doesn't. He just never sees her again, and I thought that was really wonderfully done. And it's the, the same shock value was applied to this, but it's one of those things you want to put it under Mark Miller's face and say this is shock value. Yeah, because shock value now is just a way to attract younger audiences. Yeah, shock value now is just doing something shocking for the sake of doing shocking. Yeah, it's not doing something that organically grows out of the storyline that genuinely shocks you as a reader. There's mm. two different things. This shocked me because I didn't think Epiphany would do this. Because you're so into the mindset of you don't kill somebody in cold blood. Yeah. And Epiphany's like, bang! And she's still like, it's not made me feel any better, but I've killed him. Mm. So There's The argument that this one panel is the reason why Vertigo should still exist, though. Yeah. Well, it's, it's why Hellblazer should still exist. Yeah. But, like you said, Didio doesn't seem terribly interested in uh, in any of that. Decent stories. Well, I don't know. It's not fair to say there are no decent stories in the New 52. Oh, no, because there are good ones. There's quite a lot of good ones. But primarily to me, they seem to be in books that didn't need fixing in the first place. Batman is arguably the best it's been in a long time at the minute. Yeah. But Batman didn't need fixing. So other than faff around with the history of the characters by saying, it's five-year timeline, so you've lost all that beautiful character development that writers like Ed Brubacker and Chuck Dixon did with them. And No Man's Land is beautiful for that, yeah. for seeing how the characters all develop, how Robin relates to Nightwing, how Nightwing relates to Barbara Gordon, how they all relate to Batman, how Batman relates to Commissioner Gordon. This is stuff that's all been lost. I'm not bothered about continuity being lost. Yeah. Continuity gets rewritten and overridden and retconned all the time. It's the history that is now no longer there. Well, there's that, and DC only seems to be bothered about collectability and sales. Well, I don't know. I don't mind them being bothered about sales. No, but that's all they're, a business. they're bothered about. Mm. They're, they're all about getting... Okay, there's the thing where... There's always the complaint that you want a book to come out on time. Mm. But the problem with that is, you've always got your filling artists, mm -hmm. you've always got 
um, well, 20-page comics, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like much, but when you're getting, paying seems to be $2.99 for 22, Stan 23. and Jack could turn out 22-page comics a month. When it's... The problem is, they're not focusing on the stories, they're focusing on getting them out so that they can get money from it. Which, mm. from a business point of view, is fine, but from a reading point of view, it sucks. No, because I would argue that Marvel now doesn't seem to be struggling too much with that. Mm. Age of Ultron seems to be missing a few deadlines recently. No, that's... that's Has it stayed true? That's, what, six issues? Yeah. So, so I yeah. think the overall story is eight. It's ten, I think. Is it? Yeah. And um, Brian Hitch only drew the first half, didn't he? Mm. On his way out the door. But Marvel now seems to be maintaining a steadier creative team turnover than New 52 does. Even Hawkeye had fill-in artists. Yeah, but it's fill-in artists that suit the material. Yeah. And it's, they knew there would be a fill-in artist there. So the book is still coming in time. And let's be honest, Hawkeye turned an issue around in three weeks when they decided they were going to do um, a story about the New York flood that they yeah. had recently when they had the flooding in the bad weather and Matt Fraction decided he was going to do an issue about it they turned that issue around from nothing to published in three weeks mm. so fair play to them because that issue shouldn't have been that sandwiched in between the stories yeah. they slid that in so they could get it out in timely fashion but this seems to be a problem with problem with DC specifically yeah and there seems to be more grumblings from the creators and there's several reasons about it there's loads of different things as to why no one's liking them much but let's see I'm not interested in the behind the scenes kerfuffling if the product's good but sometimes is the product's all that good I don't think a lot of the product is any good no I don't think Superman's any good I don't think Wonder, Wonder Woman's not interested Vertigo was better than DC yeah, well, say I've not read any Vertigo books for a while. Mm. But I don't know, it's it's difficult. I want your books to come out on time. And I want them to be solicited in the way that they're solicited. And it seems oh. to me when I was a kid, the book was there every month when I wanted it. Mm. Well, would you rather have a book every month and it be crap? Or would you rather to wait a month longer and have a really good book? I would rather have my book every month and be good. Seems to me, see, well, it seems to me there's 40 years worth of comic books there from creators who could pull that off. Roger Stern didn't miss a deadline. Byrne didn't miss a deadline. Stanley and Steve Ditko and Stanley and Jack Kirby churned out an issue of their book every single month without missing, without fail. Kirby did it for 100 odd issues on Fantastic Four. Ditko did it for 38 issues on Spider-Man. Yeah, but they weren't all taking month-long breaks to decide what big event should come next. See, so... I don't, I don't, this isn't an answer. I want them to come out every month on time and be good. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe in the old thing, do you want it fast or do you want it now? Mm. No, it's not that, is it? Do you, do, you want it fa- do you want it fast or do you want it good? Yeah. That's what it is, isn't it? And it's like, well, why can't I have both? Because it's DC. <laughs> so, fair enough. Anyway. Image, if you want it on a monthly schedule... Yeah, see, there's, there's the weird thing. If you'd have told me that some of my favourite comics now would be published by Image... Yeah. 20 years ago I'd have mocked you <laughs> I'd have laughed in your face but not only have they got Saga yeah. coming, they've also got a new Greg Rucker Michael Lark Everyone's creator owned boot coming up in Image Image is the new DC oh, Image is the new Vertigo yeah I think and I've got that on order because I like Greg Rucker and I like Michael Lark mm. and Fatal by Brubacker and Phillips is at Image I've yeah. still not read them I've got 16 issues of that book I need to read. But, yeah, it's it's weird that I'm buying image books 
and Walking Dead and Invincible and yeah. I'm sure there are various other ones that are worth exploring. Put it in there. Morrison's there now. And yeah, Grant Morrison's there doing his own stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of this would have been at Vertigo at one time. So Didio sacrificed that, but he doesn't care. It is Didio as well, though. Yeah, pretty much. I've said before, you can look at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and you can look at the covers. You know, you can list all the covers of the three series. You can tell at which point I lost interest in Superman from the covers. And then you look at those covers, and you look at the creative teams, and you suddenly go, that's when Didio took over. Mm. And this isn't bitching or kvetching. I like all-star western, but it's a boot that, by and large, he's left alone. I like The Flash. It's a boot by and large he's left alone. Mm. He seems to be leaving Scott Snyder alone. But the Superman books, which we keep harping on about, but it does just seem to me as they've not known what to do with him since, what, 2000? They're coming mm. on 15 years now? So maybe Man of Steel and Scott Snyder and Jim Lee coming on a Superman boot will be good. Maybe we'll have a writer who's got an idea of what to do with it. Yeah. But we'll see how it goes. Anyway, back to this comic, because that was quite the transgression, wasn't it? Um, John's ghost shows up. Which wasn't really much of a surprise. No, I just really liked the art style of it, though. Yeah, it's... All scratchy and... The art in all of it is very good. Epiphany's descent into suicide and grief... Suicide. Suicide and grief is well handled. And then when John's ghost shows up and tells her not to commit suicide... Mm. it's a lovely scene and yeah how the ghost is drawn it's not it's, it's strange to say non-corporeal because he's a ghost but the bottom half of him isn't drawn he's just kind of hovering there in mid-air a bit like Saga's ghost yeah except all of her entrails are drilling out at the bottom <laughs> yeah. whereas you don't see that in Constantine um, yeah it is exceptionally good my favourite line in this entire issue was the line in the funeral home were, she says uh, the funeral home do the best with him but John never had a healthy glow when he was alive mm. and it, it did just remind me of one of the things my nan said when her mum died when my grand, my great grandma died mm. she went to the funeral home to look at her and she said it didn't look like her mum the, there was too much makeup her mum never did makeup like that and, and that line there just reminded me of that that she wishes she hadn't gone seeing her in the funeral home because her last memory of her mum now is wrong. The makeup's wrong, there's too much of it. That's not how she looks. Yeah. And this that line there just perfectly remind me that they've made John look healthy. He didn't look healthy. He smoked forty a day and lived in the dartlet. Yeah. The dartlet, the darkness. Not the band, obviously. So that was I thought that was a particularly and affecting line of dialogue. That again it's like you know, are you really going to get moments like that in a DC comic? No, well, it reminds you of such a yeah. It a, reminds you of something in your own personal life. Personal memory, yeah. And it's it's just so well observed and so and it's only one line, yeah. but it did just bring all that flooding back to me. And it's just it shows the level of subtlety that Hellblazer was capable of operating on. Mm. It didn't always do it, but when it did, but when it did it, it did it in spectacular fashion. Mm. Um. I did like um, when Angie leaves, and there's the subplot about her thinking that she um, Epiphany's um, a scheming vixen. A, yes. Yeah. And a bit later on, where she says, "Just for the record, I'm not a scheming vixen." The look of panic on Angie's face. Yeah, where she's like, "How do you know that?" <laughs> yeah. But Epiphany just leaves it there. Um, Finn, when Finn shows up though, and Finn tells Epiphany that. Um, 
he's dug up somebody's skull and kept it in a room because he's experimenting with the occult. And then this kids and his wife lead him because he's become too obsessed with it. And why is all this John's fault? Where's personal responsibility in any of this? Someone to blame. It's all Finn's well, fault. It's similar to the issue Ennis did where Gemma got into that and John, because she was inspired by John, and he had to stop her from doing it because it was bad. Mm, well, Gemma's still struggling with it. Yeah. Because Gemma's still in this issue. So that, that I didn't understand. Well, I did understand it because we live in an age where people don't have personal responsibility. Mm. But uh, then how old was Epiphany when she met John? It was in uh, Milligan's run. Right, because... It was only a year or two ago. That panel makes it look like John's about 30 and she's 10. Mm. Which is a little bit wrong. Yeah. I thought. Um, the bit where um, Epiphany and Finn... Get it on. Get it on. There, there was the bit where I was like a little bit shocked. Then the more I thought about it, I was like, wait, wait. Finn's going to replace John. This is... Uh. See, now I didn't go, though. Did you not? As you read the whole three issues and it all starts to come together, mm. uh, they make numerous references to the fact that he looks like a young John Constantine because he's yeah. John's cousin. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was reading into it. Like, he's a blood relation, isn't he? Yeah, because I was thinking, like, either um, he's there to replace John like in Epiphany's life, or there was one bit later on where he says, you can call me John if you like, so... So there, if sense, so set, there could be setting up that mm. Finn is John Constantine oh, in the New Fifty Two. I originally thought two. The, the first thing of reading it all, actually not the first thing, but after reading it all, I got that she's just using him as a substitute. He smells like John. Well, that's, he looks yeah. like John. So she's using him to help her try and get over her grief. She's still in denial that John's died. Mm. The other thing I did thought when he says, you can call me John if you like, I thought John had performed some kind of mind transference deal. And Finn had died, and John was living on in Finn's body, like Doctor Octopus and Spider-Man. Bit with Gemma. Yeah, that, that is true. Bit at the very end, which could have made it. True. Yeah, that that none of that's true. That's initially what I thought yeah. reading it the first time. I thought he's pulled some kind of mind transference thing here, but they didn't do anything that obvious. Hmm. Which is fair play to him for not doing anything. I'm that still not entirely sure what they did. Uh, well, we'll get there when we get to the last issue, because I think we have quite a lot to say about it. I did that. like that panel in the rain. Yeah. it's The art's great. Again, the art does really does a good job of telling the story without calling attention to itself. Yeah. Which is what it should do. Um, this second issue was a great issue of loss and coping. The opening pages were Piffy's life just moves so fast as the scene goes from CPR to the ambulance to the hospital to her realisation that Johnny's dead to her remembering what happened is perfect. A long time compressed down to a few panels because that's what stuff like this feels like. Yeah. When your brother got run over, and there's a guy came to the front door and told us, and I ran, I ran like hell out the window up the street to where he said he was, and the guy couldn't keep up with me. Mm. And it was one of those you things. You were barefoot as well. Yeah, and I was barefoot as well. And it was one of those things. Afterwards, you realise I don't know how fast I was running up that street, mm. but it was two, and I was at the end of the road. And then from that happening to me, phoning everybody, to your mum getting in the ambulance, to us getting up to the hospital, to telling you, that was all just boom, boom, boom. And then when we got to the hospital and everything was okay, and they were going to keep him in for a few hours to make sure he was all right. But that that little piece of time from being told that your brother had got run over yeah. to 
him being in hospital and being told he was going to be okay, he's not been anything serious, the woman was only travelling at 15 miles an hour, he's very lucky. That and he's bloody indestructible. But that as well. Yeah, and especially since it was his fault. Yeah. He's copped to that later on. But it it does, in your head, It do, you just remember bits of it. Sequences, you don't remember the whole thing. Mm. And it's only later on you look at your, t- you, you watch and you go, blind, was that three hours? Mm. And it's just, so, they, so they captured that once again. Hellblazer's the yeah. personal human story that yeah. within no the either. horror, yeah. and it did, it did an exceptionally good job of doing that. It, it all jumbles around and coalesces in your mind, and Milligan does a brilliant job of capturing it. The rest of the issue dealing with Piffy's grief is likewise well observed, and I like the little moments from last issue: Terry whining about John and casually wishing him dead, John giving Piffy Angie Spatchcock's number, and that was all paid off in this issue but there were no like I said there were no neon lights over it in the previous issue mm. it was all there and when you read it all as one you go alright ah, that's set up that's payoff. well done <laughs> um, the demon stuff may feel a little bit out of place but it shows that life goes on and John's life was stuff like this and this is partly what Epiphany has to deal with now um, I think I've said already Epiphany blowing the guy away was unexpected and shocking, as was her sleeping with Finn. But the reader still can't find it in his heart to be upset with her Mm. because of the reasons that she's doing it become apparent. She thinks of him as being a link to John. And it's it's very well done. The funeral's handed well, but it was the ending that was totally expected. Which is it, why he did it. Well, it was expected and unexpected at the no, same time. No, see, I was like, this has got three issues left. He killed him at the end of Act 1. Mm. Act 2 is going to be him showing back up. This is the only trouble when you know story structure, isn't it? Yeah. <coughs> so that wasn't totally unexpected. It was still effective and it still worked. Mm. And I presume it's exactly why Pete Milligan did it. Yeah. Because he knows that you're expecting this. And that's why he pulled it off. And he did it in fine, fine fashion. But did he? Well, that's what we'll see as we go to the final issue of Hellblazer, number 300, which has an April 2013 cover date and is by all the same people. The cover simply has a cigarette butt burning out on the floor and a pair of legs can be seen walking away, trench coat flowing behind him. It's kind of perfect, Mm. as last issue covers go. As soon as it was solicited, one of my favourite covers. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, and there's just something perfect about it. It's John. Yeah. Without... There's not really a lot there. No. It's a pair of feet, a hero coat flapping in the breeze, and a cigarette butt taking up the majority of the cover. <clears throat> it is perfect. Yeah. In everywhere. Part three, Ash. Epiphany takes the news that John is alive well, in that she doesn't kill him again. Anger gives way to grief and the couple celebrate in that way that couples do. But it isn't long before Piffy senses something is amiss. John is flaky. He can't remember important things. And when Finn arrives at the flat, Piffy is being attacked by a demon called Julian, hoping to enact final revenge on John's lover for some perceived transgression. John and Epiphany fight off. I said John, didn't I? Finn, see, I'm doing it. Finn and Epiphany fight off the demon and send it back whence it came by using John's old trick of talking bollocks, basically. Still in denial, Piffy picks up the ashes and they take them to Highgate Cemetery, where John's spirit appears and sees Piffy and Finn at it on the gravestones. Rather than being annoyed, John is satisfied that Epiphany is getting on with her life and the fates seem confused that John is so accepting. 
One person not so accepting is Chaz, who clocks Finn, but Piffy knocks Chaz on his ass, and John appears to Chaz, saying they're doing nothing wrong, even if Epiphany is with Finn because he looks, acts, and smells like John. John appears to Epiphany later on, they talk about getting him back. Later, Piffy meets John's spirit in the park and hands him his ashes, kept separate as he requested. Epiphany lights up a ciggy and John polishes it off, followed by another and another, all the time becoming more corporeal. Meanwhile, John's niece, Gemma, has gotten over her suicidal tendencies and gotten a job at Terry Greaves' strip joint as a waitress. Outside, Terry meets John to sort out some business, but John has made a deal with the first of the fall and to take Terry. After all, he already has Terry's own soul, so he may as well have the rest of him. John then wanders over to meet Finn, the last thing he needs to take care of. He tells Finn to forget about his obsession with the dark arts and move on, get his family back, rebuild his life. After being surprised that John is solid, Finn asks where John will go next. Somewhere the fates won't find me, is the reply. Back with Epiphany, they have a place to go. A cottage in Kerry Island, where there's no internet access or phones, no demons or ghosts. The exact opposite of where you would expect to find John Constantine. But in the night, John experiences pain, and he realises that wherever they go, Epiphany will always be in danger. Trying to sneak out in the night, Epiphany says she doesn't want to live without him, but John says she can and will. As for him, he's not going to avoid his destiny any longer. John makes his way over to Gemma's. Gemma, his little niece who can't live with him, can't live without him. She could kill him, and he'd consume her even more than when he was alive. But it has to be her choice. She fires a supernatural dart at John and time seems to stand still. The world shakes. A world without John Constantine. His disembodied spirit zooms high over the world, away from London to Liverpool, and alights in the Long Journey's End pub, where a much older John stands, pint in hand. Page one. Gemma attempts, well she doesn't attempt, she thinks of attempting suicide with the gun that she ultimately uses to kill John. Is there some symbolism to that gun that I'm missing? Because it's not a normal gun. No, it's the first time I've seen it. Right, so I wonder if it's got some connection to an earlier issue that we've not read. Maybe. Or maybe I'm not remembering. We should read all 300 issues in one go. I'm perfectly down with that, it's just, it would take... I'm certainly down for reading Milligan's, all of Milligan's run. I've read the first load of it until just before the wedding right. and that's all good Peter Milligan's a good writer mm. he's an exceptionally good one of writer. my personal favourite issues being um, the London Olympic Stadium was built on an old ancient Indian of burial ground of course it was <laughs> John does poltergeist uh, the opening pages to this are exceptional as readers we want John to survive hell we expected it so the ending to last issue and the satisfying up to this one give us exactly what we want but as Epiphany starts to realise it's all a bit too convenient and the art on the bottom of page 5 really sells her putting it all together which I thought was a lovely little touch Uh, page 10 Finn's spell by the patron saint of snakes and ladders (laughs) which is hysterical because Piffy calls him out about it on page 11, which was a conversation I actually really, really liked, because it basically says that John got by on a wing and a prayer, more attitude than aptitude, and that the spells were more about his confidence than in what he was actually saying. Because, to be honest, I didn't get that from reading it the first time. When you pointed it out... Oh, it's like, right. wait a minute, yeah, you really did. So the guy read it and went, really? But I love that she, she pulls him up on it later. I thought yeah. it was really good. Um, I wonder if Doctor Strange does it the same way. 
Probably. All that hoary horse of Hoggoth stuff. Dr. BS. It doesn't matter what he (laughs) says. It's all in the spells. So he just talks a lot of cack most of the time. Instead of a PH, he has a BS. (laughs) Instead of a PhD, yeah. Dr. Strange BS artist. (laughs) Um, Page 12. um, Epiphany makes a reference to the suicide bridge from Milligan's Hellblazer annual, which for the most part existed on its own, um, as its own story and didn't affect the continuity of the main book. Yeah, well, it's another example of them doing little callbacks Yeah, through to the rest of the series. Uh, again, we've mentioned that the stuff about the ashes is fascinating, that your ashes get mixed up with other people's. So your choice is either burn to a crisp or n- and nothingness or have your corpse rotten beaten by worms. Mm. Delightful dying, isn't it? It's great. Mm, yeah. Dying ain't much for a living. No. Uh, the bit where John sees um, Finn and Epiphany in the graveyard. At it. There was that thing where you expect him to be annoyed, but the, the, there's the thing where you feel sad as the reader just because of how he's changing people's lives. Mm. It's, it's unusual that John Constantine is um, an optimistic force for good. Yeah. But even here, he's got he's playing an angle. Mm. So he's not completely let us down and, and turned all safe. And page 14, the fate saying John live longer than uh, most. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it confused me a little, but he's over 60. A lot of people live past 60. Yeah. He doesn't say he's lived longer than most. He says he's lived more than most. So what the saying is, he's packed an he's awful lot life. into his 60 years. And maybe he's just had enough. Mm. That's that's what I got from it. And the, so the dialogue doesn't actually say that he's lived longer. So I think that's what they're saying. He's okay. packed an awful lot into his sixty years. Maybe he's just had enough. Mm. Which you know they don't know John very well if the if that's what they're thinking. I do have but, to say the face look a lot like hipsters. Yes, they do. They, well, that was one of Hellblazer's problems. Hipsters. Yeah, but John would take the mick out of them. Yeah. So that worked well. But you remember, John was a bit of a cocky hipster arsehole himself when he was a teenager mm. in the issues where we, we saw mucous membrane. Yeah. So, that's fair enough. Um, the whole back half of the issue, I don't really have much in the way of page-by-page notes for, because it was just stunning. From Finn's hero worship of John, which I suppose can be seen as a commentary on fandom if you want it to be, to John's resurrection, to his realisation that it doesn't matter where he goes, the fates will eventually catch up with him, was just wonderfully written by Pete Milligan. Especially good was John volunteering to leave Piffy to save her life and then giving the Gemma, and then giving the Gemma, and then giving Gemma the choice of killing him or not. John was a selfish bastard most of the time rarely caring about the consequences of his actions even if inadvertently he did manage to save some lives but here in this final issue we do get to see John be self selfless he tells Finn to get over his hero worship and sort himself out get out before this all kills him go and get your family back he gives up Piffany to save her life and then lets Gemma choose her own path finally John does something purely selfless Hmm. Granted, he sells that Epiphany's dad, which I can't imagine she's happy about. But or maybe she is. Yeah, well, it is. It is entirely possible that um, she's happy about that. Uh, I actually thought this was a very hard issue to talk about. Not that it seems to have stopped us. Hmm. John was somebody I thought would always be there, like an old friend you don't see for months, and then you pick up where you left off, and then you don't see him for months again, and then one day he's not there anymore. 
As an issue of a comic book, this was exceptional. There are a few nods to the past, but the story is rooted in the here and now. As readers, we expected John to cheat death. After all, he's done it before. But here, it just felt very different. Milligan again shows his ear for character detail and the dialogue is exceptional. Epiphany's relationship with Finn is also delicately handled. Finn reminds her so much of John that she practically throws herself at him. But it's a relationship that can't work for that reason. Finn isn't John. There's also the great moment where John realises he can't escape. At some point, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday he will have to leave Epiphany or she will surely pay the price. It was just a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. The only other note I have on the final page... Can we read something into the fact that John's face, when he realises there's no way out, on page 31, is exactly the same as his expression on the last page? Maybe. There's no way out. Mm. And that's what he's realising on the last page as well. I like Uh, that he's returned back to Liverpool. Yeah, and he's in the pub in Liverpool. Mm. The long journey's end, which is appropriate, I suppose. Um... The issue works really well until the ending, which manages the nifty trick of being both apt and appropriate and frustrating and incomplete in equal measure. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a pretty damn good trick to pull off. Um, whilst I'm not sure what the dart that Gemma shot John with is, it seems to have propelled him forward in time, but he's aged along with it, implying he's not skipped over time. Because he does look a lot older in the last panel. Could it be? Mm-hmm. A little metatextual message that he's now when we brought up that he doesn't look 60 mm. he's now he's now looking his aged age so that he is 60 it could be it could also there was a vertigo one shot that Jamie Delano did that showed a much older John mm. so this may be tying in with that or it could leave it so that it ties into the Sean Gordon Murphy miniseries set in the future with the North John Constantine. Right, so so either way, they're saying that he's not dead, it's not an ending. Can't he's still out fixed. there somewhere. Yeah. Um, unless he dies in that one shot, or the, the Gordon Morphy thing, I've not read them. Hmm. So he, if he dies in them, I don't know. Uh, the final pages are haunting and deliberately so, with no pat answers and tidy endings, which I suppose is the entire series in microcosm. Uh-huh. Isn't it? That this ending... You know, if in conclusion, the final issue of Hellblazer is every bit as uncompromising, as bleak as you want it to be. Mm. It is also as every bit as hopeful and optimistic as you want it to be. It is exactly what you want it to be. Wholly satisfying? Probably not. But that's probably what John would have wanted. It was a perfect end. Do you think so? I do think so. Not, I do think it's not what readers wanted, but it was perfect. Mm. The first time I read this, I didn't like it. And it was only in reading it again for mm. this that I did like it. So that's a good story. Mm. Then you can read it again and it just completely changes your opinion. Yeah, the, the ending works. It may not be the ending we wanted. It may not be an ending. But it's satisfying. Mm. And it makes you close the comic with a satisfying... Ah. Oh. And a, also a sad... Oh. 
Because we will never see his like again. We'll never see John Constantine again. No, we'll never see the real John Constantine again. Unfortunately. Because John Constantine moved. Where did he move to, John? John Constantine truly did die. Yeah. In November 2012, not only was the cancellation of Hellblazer confirmed, but Constantine, the mainstream DC equivalent, was also confirmed along with a half-finished sketch of John by the book's artist Renato Guedes. Is it Guedes? Guedes. (laughs) Sweatshop. (laughs) DC sweatshop number 72. They've got them all over the world. Yeah. With, like, handprints on them. It's like Logan's run. Yeah! When it lights up, it's your turn to draw a comic. Carousel! <laughs> uh, the original writer for the book was to be Robert Vendetti. However, this would change before the book even saw the light of day. A creative team shift on a boot before it comes out. I'm shocked! Yeah. Shocked, I tell you! ODC. Yeah. When DC rebooted its entire line in 2001, one of the titles was Justice League Dark by Peter Milligan and Michael Janine. Janin. Janine. That consisted of 90s Vertigo characters such as Constantine, Rack, Shade, The Changing Man, and other mostly obscure characters such as Zatanna and Andrew Bennett. After eight issues, two of which crossed over into I Vampire, Milligan left the book and was re- replaced by Animal Man writer Jeff Lemire. Both writers brought in new and younger John, somewhat different to his still active Vertigo counterpoint. Some could argue that he was similar to the movie version, but others, myself included, actually liked the new John. Especially under someone who was writing Hellblazer at the time. Mm. As well as Justice League Dark, John made appearances in other titles, mostly the Dark titles such as I, Vampire and Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. I'm sorry, hold on a second. Amethyst Princess of Gemworld is a dark boot now. Maybe not dark, but the edge. Right, Because they have the different categories, don't they? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Despite Batman having 50 of the 50 (laughs) titles... (laughs) Exaggeration for comic effect, very good. John wasn't allowed to have two. And because of DC having control over Vertigo, Hellblaze was cancelled so that John could be fully integrated into the mainstream DCU and not cause any confusion to casual readers who might not even know who John Constantine was and couldn't even comprehend why he was in two places at once in two different titles. These fictional new readers. Oh, yes. When solicitations came out, Constantine was said to be written by Vendetti with art by Guides. Guides. Guedes. Artist 72. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And a cover by Artist 53, Juan Yose. <laughs> Carousel! And a variant cover by Guides. When issue 2 was solicited, however, before the release of issue 1, the credits had been changed that it was now Jeff Lemire and Ray Fox on writing duties. Constantine issue 1 was released March of this year with a cover by Ivan Reese. That's probably worse than the actual solicited one, which came with the variant cover of the actual solicited cover. Uh, the credits had also been changed for this issue so that Lemire and Fox were credited, but there was no mentioning of Vendetti at all. So whether this was written by Vendetti or Lemire remains mostly unknown. Right. Uh, the cover is extremely new 52. 
Constantine looks like he has that chiselled, handsome look of a California surfer. He's casting spells like a younger, sexier Doctor Strange and carries a sigil with him and skulls float menacingly, but not too scurrily in the background. It's all much younger and sexier with John having a cleft in his chin and wavy blonde hair. There's a young and sexy vibe to it. Did I mention that younger and sexier? <laughs> I think you might have. Uh, it's also obvious, predictable, and very much a bastardised Hollywood younger, sexier version of Constantine that misses the point so totally it would be hysterical if it wasn't so tragic. Mm. It's a really crap cover. Yes. I like Ivan Reese, and I like Ivan Reese, John Constantine. Mm, I like Ivan Reese, I like John Constantine. That's not Constantine. thing is, though, um, you've not read Brightest Day, have you? No, I've read Blackest Night. Last two pages of Brightest Day is after Swamp Things come back. John Constantine looks for him. The last two pages is a zoom, a fade out uh, in the aftermath of Swamp Thing killing businessmen. Right. Uh, fade out of lighting a cigarette, pulling out, and John Constantine standing in the middle of the room saying bollocks. It was a great moment to be honest, and Ivan <laughs> Reese did a really good John Constantine. Yeah. But seeing him like this, this is New Fifty Two. Yeah. John Constantine. It's everything about it is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> John shouldn't be the... He shouldn't be ruggedly handsome, should he? Mm. There was a really good cover... Okay, um, I've got issue zero here. Justice League there. Yeah, but with a cover of Ryan Souk. Yeah. So, and that's a really good John Constantine, I think. He looks... He still looks a little bit smug, but Constantine would have that smug yeah. look to him. Uh, issue nine, Jeff Lemire's first issue. Mm. There was a really good John Constantine... Okay, it didn't have the coat, but it was a really good. Well, he doesn't one have him. to have the coat. No, but it was a really good one of him of just lighting a cigarette. Right. But okay. No, that's just it's the slick Hollywood bastardized, uh, bastardized version of let's John. Let's compare Carson it to Tate. an actual cover of Hellblazer. Yeah, and it's just, there is no comparison. Mm. Oh well. Uh, the Spark and the Flame Part One: The Price We Pay was brought to you by Fox and Lemire Guides. Colorist, colorist. Did he shoot Han Solo? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> colorist number 53, Marcello Mauiolo. Renew! Renew! Letterer 104, Salsa Crinioff. <laughs> and editors Katie Cubert and Brian Cunningham. John leaves a bar in snowy New York City, his new home, where he's greeted by an annoying woman who tells him someone's annoyed at him from stealing something. In his snarky new 52 voice, he says he probably did steal it and walks off moaning about superheroes. Chris, someone who's panicking about it happening again, meets John outside his apartment building, and John brings him down to his apartment. John gets Chris to draw the location of Croydon's compass on an atlas and they decide to head to it. They take a plane, and on it, one of the Earth hostesses slips poison into John's drink. He acts as though the poison works and rushes to a toilet where the hostess comes up behind him, but John throws her into the stall and locks him inside. He asks her what the cold flame is, the occult she's working for, and what they want with him, but she magically explodes. John then returns to his seat. After arriving in Norway, John and Chris take a taxi up to the hotel made of ice and head to a chapel inside. John does something with fire in the chapel, and Chris panics, saying Sargon the Sorcerer is coming. John also panics as this name means something to him and attempts to get Chris out of his fit so they can leave, but they're too late. The spirits of Sargon, Zatara, Mr. E and Tanarak arrive. 
Sargon the Sorceress also arrives and casts a spell on Chris that crushes his body from the inside and tells John to give her the needle that connects to Crowley's compass. He decides to let Chris die instead and runs off with the compass. Sargon chases him, but John uses magic and slips away. And of course, Sargon the Sack Sorceress is young and sexy and has wonderful breasts. Because it's the new 52. Everyone's young and sexy. Um, page one and two are painfully obvious um, in that these two couple of pages are appalling. John lays out who he is, what he does, and it's so on the nose compared to the subtle approach taken by the Hellblazer writers. It's almost a bad parody of Hellblazer. Yeah. Isn't it? Because men like them are cheaters. They yeah. Cheat. It's, there's the blokes like me, yeah. We cheat. <laughs> I like how you change your voice. It's like dangerous to everybody, ourselves included. But to cheat the system tries to compensate. Nobody really understands. Magic is costly. You take what you didn't earn, but you pay for it. You want to trust me on that? Let's hammer that nail in. You play with magic, you'll pay for it. Maybe not today. Hammer, hammer, hammer. And it's it's just appallingly bad. And you've got that bottom panel on the bottom of page two that is a take of every Warren Ellis character ever. Well, I'm going to say I haven't made a note. Well, I really like that panel. As a piece of art. But I, I really like the art in this, to be honest. Sometimes it has its up, sometimes it has its down. For instance, there's one, there's a panel later on where he does a Gary Frank impression and bites his... <laughs> bites his bottom lip. There, there's bits where I do like the art, like the top of um, page two, that top panel. Mm. Of John just walking. Through New York. I like the fisheye lens on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do like the bo- the panel at the bottom, but it is ripped straight out of Transmetropolitan. The, well, that's what I thought. It's it's parodying every Warren Ellis character. After reading that issue of Planetary, yeah. this makes so much sense. He's Elijah Snow. No. Go on. Okay. Yeah. He is lighting the cigarette in the exact same pose mm. that Derek Robertson did with Spider Jerusalem. Yeah. Why is that? Why? Because John Constantine is Spider Jerusalem. In Planetary. <laughs> I just I just looked at that and thought after seeing Ellis do it Ellis does it that just feels like a bad parody. Mm. But the art, yes, the artwork is good on that particular page. Blatantly digital. Yeah. But like well. Fiona Staples, sometimes blatantly digital can be good. Yeah, I mean it's you know, it's uh, I was very surprised I mean you get to page five of this. You get to page five of this before you get the credits, and I was very surprised that Nightwing gets created by credit. Whereas we've discussed before, the creators, and I have nothing against Marv Wolfman and George Perez, but it seems to me all they did was graft two already existing concepts together and come up with arguably not a new concept. Hmm. Uh, But Constantine, who was quite clearly created from whole cloth by Alan Moore, and John Totleyban, who simply asked to draw a character who looked like Sting, Hmm. they don't get a credit, do they not? They don't get a John Constantine created by credit. Apparently not. A character that you can clearly point to, the writer and the artist that created him, and the issue that that happened in, they don't get a created by credit. But Nightwing, where they take a character who was created in the 40s in the shape of Dick Grayson, Mm -hmm. and a character or a concept, Nightwing and Flamebird with the superheroes and Krypton from either the 50s or the 60s, marry them together, that is an act of creation, apparently. Apparently. Bollocks. (laughs) Bollocks. <laughs> Either credit everybody or credit nobody. 
Yeah. Where is Alan Moore? I mean, I'm not the biggest Alan Moore fan in the world. He deserves a John Constantine created by credit if Wolfman and Perez are getting a cre- Nightwing created by credit. It's arguably even more so than Wolfman and Perez. Much more so. That's the point yeah. I'm making. Alan Moore actually created John Constantine. Whatever other problems I may have with him and his stories and his using Peter Pan and Wendy to do things, creation. he created John Constantine. Yeah. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. And you can argue John Totleban contributed as well, because he was the one who went to Alan Moore and said, um, I want to draw a character who looks like Sting. And from that springboard, Alan Moore created John Constantine. Mm. So, all right, credit both of them. But there is a clear example, though, of a character and his creation. There's no ambiguity. Yeah. If Nightwing gets a created by credit, this should get a created by credit. Mm-hmm. I don't care that Alan Moore had said, no, I don't want one. I'll toss the money back at him. He deserves to be credited. Yeah. If Wolfman and Perez do. You know what's even worse than that, though? What? The little origin. Oh, little God, thing. yeah. Do you want to read it out? Do you want me to read it? The, 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 <laughs> new, the new little saga cell, instead of rocketing from yeah. a dying planet, blah, blah, blah. Nearly blah. destroyed by its temptations in its youth. John Constantine knows the price of magic's corrupting influence all too well. Now he fights the battle to maintain balance and prevent anyone from becoming too powerful. Bollocks. <laughs> John doesn't fight a never-ending battle for truth and justice. Lip service to Newcastle. But... It's, it's so spectacularly misses the point. You, you, you're of the opinion that it, they have to be doing it deliberately. Mm. They have to be deliberately missing the point to miss it so well. I mean, it, I suppose you've got to give them credit. <laughs> if you're going to do something that so spectacularly gets it wrong, do it well. <laughs> but no, this is... Oh, Christ. Um, page six, Angus Croydon. Yeah. Um, is an analogue of Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley was actually mentioned in Hellblazer. Yes. He Why was. are they not allowed to mention him here? Mainstream DC copyright laws. I've, but I just know that Croydon is Crowley. Right, okay, fair enough. Who, funny enough, I was talking about today. That's cool. Uh, we were doing... We, we were just looking at Sergeant Rock. Mm. Pepper, even. Sergeant Pepper? Because <laughs> Sergeant Pepper in Easy Company. <laughs> I would read that comic. <laughs> Uh, because we were doing crowds for our exam and we were looking at artists and he was on because of that cover. Mm. And we were looking at who was on it and Alistair Crowley was on it. Right. My art teacher didn't know who Alistair Crowley was and so I was telling her about it. Is this it. another time where you have, you've embarrassed your teachers with your knowledge? Oh, no, no, no. She was very impressed. No, she's she's alright though, your art teacher. I like your well, art teacher. This is an art, a different art teacher, but the other um, day she was looking at... Um, we were looking at like... How co- uh, comics, superhero comics, took off, and looking at how they were in um, like World War Two, mm. and one of the, the pictures that came up was from Super uh, Captain America and Batman mm. by John Byrne, mm-hmm. and I said, "That's Captain America and uh, Batman by John Byrne," and it's like, it's like her and the other student in my class both looked at me. He's like, y- "You really are like a gold mine of knowledge." <laughs> See, this is what we like. They didn't both look at you and go, geek. They went, wow, we are impressed by your knowledge. That's what we should be celebrating. Intelligent people, not Cardassians. <laughs> also, um, page eight, uh, the cult of the cold flame. Um, this is tied into Justice League Dark. Right. The cult wanted Nick Necro and Zatanna in Justice League Dark Zero after um, Zatara, the main target, had died. I do like the name Nick Necro. 
Mm. I quite like that. Because John um, Constantine essentially is, issue zero sets him up as John Constantine in the New 52, right. is impersonating Nick Necro. If, if we look through it, because I've got issue zero here. Yeah, that's the one I read earlier on, isn't it? See, that's John at the beginning. Mm. But he takes over wearing the suit, he even gets Nick's tattoo, and then at the end, steals, steals his coat. Really? Yep. So Constantine's image is entirely based off somebody else? Yep. See that point over there? <laughs> See that? See how far away that is? That's how far they've missed it. <laughs> that was what I didn't like about the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah. That everything that happened that made Indy who he is happened in that first ten minutes of that film. So, like, that day set him on the path for who he was going to be. Just So that one day he scarred his chin, he met the lion tamer with the bullwhip, and he saw the guy with the leather jacket and the fedora, and got taught all about fortune and glory and putting things in museums. So without that <laughs> ten minutes of day, Indiana Jones would have been a completely different person. Yeah. That's what that issue of Justice League Dart was. Yeah. Without that, John Constantine isn't John Constantine. Mm. And it's like, do you know... That not everything has to be explained. Maybe John dresses like that because he liked trench coats. Well, you say there is this, but in the story arc that was based around the issue zero, mm. when Nick Necro does come back, he, he does say, "You're just me. You're ripping off me." Exactly. Not, yeah. well, they are spectacularly missing the point. Do you have, did you ever get the feeling in Hellblazer that John Constantine, in any way, hero worshipped somebody else? No. To the point where he dressed like them. No. Maybe when he was a punk as a teenager or oh, 20 yeah, something. Yeah. Fine. We all do that when we're teenagers and 20 somethings. Hell, John Constantine in Hellblazer did not rip off his image from Nick fracking Necros. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, speaking of Sargon, I'm sure Sargon was the person that Spock was possessed by in an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> Pretty sure that that's true, uh, and they were two big golden, two, two big globes. So they have something in common with this version of Sargon as well, because she's young and sexy. Because it's the new fifty-two. Uh, John seems to have gone to the same ice hotel that James Bond stayed in at Die Another Day. Yeah, which I thought I did actually. That did make me laugh. I thought that was funny. Mm. Um, page thirteen. Uh, the middle panel has been redrawn. Has it? Why? Um, in the preview, which I have... In the back of Justice League number 17. It's in several titles, but I have it in Justice League Dark 17. Right. Uh, if we get to the preview, Justice League Dark's very good, by the way. Uh, Even now Pete Milligan's not writing it. I really like Jeff Lemire. Right, okay. I'll, I'll get into it later about my complaints on this, but if we turn to this panel here, if you can see in uh, the preview, it's Sargon, Z- um, Zatara, yeah. Mr. E, and Doctor Occult all wearing suits. Yeah. But in uh, Constantine 1, it's Zagan, Zatara, Mr. E and Tanarak all wearing some... Bizarre clothes. Yeah. And glowing. Zatara especially. That's not Zatara. No. It looks like Gavin Rossdale. Um, yeah, I wonder why they did that. Is that the only one they've read around? Yeah. There's nothing else different. I mean, they've, they've changed the panel layouts, obviously. No, that's all the same. No, that's C. The, 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 the caption box the dialogue, yeah. have, have changed, yeah. All right, fair enough. I wonder why they changed that. No idea. Hmm, very interesting. Can we bother doing enough research on it? Yeah, probably not. Uh, I did like the way that Chris dies at the end, uh, which is very Constantine, but it felt a bit forced. 
in this particular instance. Do you remember uh, Constantine Hellblazer? We're doing it, honest. It's, it's going to be similar. Uh, similar in, I would say, in name only. Um, coat only. In coat only. Um, the word that comes to mind having read this is obvious. Uh, I hate to... This might have a few complaints, but what I want to say is American. Go on. That, that, that's it. This feels like the American it feels version like, of John Constantine. It feels like they've bought a British TV show and made a US version of it. Yeah, this is this is the American Shameless or the American... Yeah, which is not to say that they may be completely without merit, mm. but it's not the original concept. No. So you have that thing, well, why buy the original concept then? Mm. It's like when they did Faulty Towers and decided to get rid of the character of John Cleese. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's just, there's something has been lost in translation. And we're just as guilty of that when we bought whatever that show was called, Who's the Boss, and made our own version of it. It was crap. Yeah. So it's, it is, we're just as guilty of doing it on the other way around. But with this, every last bit of subtlety that was present in Hellblazer and in John as a character has been removed in an effort to make him young and sexy. The dialogue is awfully on the nose compared to the realism and humour of Hellblazer. The story itself is predictable and, again, very obvious, with John being every bit the way we think an occultist would behave. And in addition to being young and sexy, he he now looks like he buys his clothes at high-end clothes shops and is portrayed very much as somebody who deliberately dresses this way to look cool as opposed to Hellblazer, where John simply oozed cool without trying. If you're trying to be cool, you're not cool. Mm. It's as simple as that. Uh, And that pretty much sums up this issue of of Constantine. Dan DiDio's managed to take John, remove everything that was good and unique about him, selling him out to the prospect of a few more sales and the hope of another Hollywood movie, which is exactly what this reads like. A typical Hollywood piss-all-over-it-to-make-it-better mentality that we've had to sit through for years, and it fails spectacularly. Give him black hair and it's a comic sequel to Constantine. Yeah, make him look like Keanu Reeves and it's a Constantine sequel. The sad thing is, once this kind of change is made, it's very rare the publishers will go back on the decision as it acknowledges that they were wrong. And we can't have Didio do that, can we? Mm. The thing with this is, going into reading I really wanted to like it. I really did. I like John Constantine, I like Jeff Lemire, and I like Jeff Lemire's John Constantine. Mm. I really like Justice League Dark and that. But Do you know, all the, would you know what you, you said earlier on? It feels like a, a bad remake of another idea. It feels like the American version of Life on Mars. Yeah. You know how that ended? Go on. Do you remember the ending to the British one? Where it was left ambiguous what he'd yeah, done. Yeah. And, but they felt that it, it they, maybe had glorified suicide. Did they point blank tell you what happened? Yeah. So in Ashes to Ashes, the sequel to Life on Mars, they actually clarified what um, Tyler... What's his name? Sam. Sam Tyler had done. Hmm. So it didn't glorify suicide. Right. But it, it's still an ambiguous and interesting ending. In um, the American version, mm-hmm. he is an astronaut on his way to Mars is my understanding of how the last episode of that right. played out so the, so the, the, title, the title is life literally on Life on Mars <laughs> right. and it's one of again this is the point yeah. you're all the way over there dude yeah and it's that's what this feels like it does you're absolutely right that's a spot on yeah. analogy it just feels like they've bought another concept in this case Hellblazer mm. and done uh, an updated swanky young and sexy version of it that completely misses the point of the original 
the thing is though we've only read one issue I don't want to read anymore I want to read um, at least until the end of this story well I've got the first three ordered for because you because the thing so. is like I said I really like Jeff Lemire and I really like John Constantine but like I said the, the, there was another writer working on this before Lemire came so on. you don't know how much of a rush job he's had today and we don't know how much of this was Vendetti and how much of it was Lemire right alright that's fair comment hmm and it could have been Ray Fox as well I mean I remember reading an interview with Lemire about it and Lemire said the only thing he did was give a guide in hand to Fox and that he mostly did the scripts himself right well, maybe that explains a lot as well hmm. uh, now I know what you're thinking and you're right <laughs> wow this all new issue one really doesn't sound all that great it couldn't possibly have had high sale figures, especially compared to Hellblazer. Uh, right, guys? Uh, well, Hellblazer had an average number of 9,262 issues sold every month in the past decade. Uh, I did some research to find that out. Mm. Um, now, yeah, it's a pretty big number. It's actually piss poor. Yeah. <laughs> but Constantine issue one sold 37,000. Now, take from that what you will. Issue 2 will probably have much less, and my guess is it will only decrease for a few more issues. I, I will be very surprised if by the end of six months this is selling the same as Hellblazer. It's issue 1, so yeah. sales don't mean anything, really. Not on the first one. I'll be, I'll be interested, because normally I don't give a rat, so that's about sales figures, do I? No. I like what I like, but I'd be very when interested. When it's something like this. Yeah, because the reason it was cancelled was because the, the younger, sexier version mm. is obviously going to make them more money. So, you know, it's it's. I just didn't. No. Alas, farewell, John Constantine. We hardly knew ye. Oh, we got to know you really well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now we know this, this trashed version of you. Uh, that about wraps it up for this week. It's the final one of Farewell Hellblazer. We know there was a gap, but we hope you enjoyed them anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, next time, we are doing Civil War, aren't we? We are doing Civil War. We're going into Civil War. Yeah, which we've already started reading. Mm-hmm. So we hope you look forward to that as much as we did. Thank you for listening. Thank you for emailing. Uh, as usual, you know how to get in touch with us. There's a new end tag coming that still has all the address information. Uh, and we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum 
www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Yes.